I want us to look in Luke chapter 23, and if you'll put your finger there, in 1 Corinthians 15 as well, I want us to think about this morning the importance of the resurrection. Those of us who know the gospel story and know the, the events of the resurrection almost take this for granted, but this is the, the final work of our Christ and our redemption, and it's so important for us to understand and be able to tell to others when we tell the gospel. We don't leave off the resurrection of Jesus Christ because just him dying on the cross would have been in vain if he did not raise from the dead. And so I want us to look here, first of all, if you'll turn over to 1 Corinthians 15, that important record that the Apostle Paul gives to the Corinthian church, where he tells them, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you, that word preach, herald, the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you're saved, if you keep in memory that what I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day. And see how over and over again he points them to the authority of God's Word according to the Scriptures. All this was prophesied. And, and the Lord fulfilled every detail of his first coming and then his coming of, and, and the work that he accomplished on our behalf. And so his second coming is just as detailed, isn't it? We have many precious promises about him coming again. The angel saying, this same Jesus will come back just like you've seen him leave. According to the scriptures, verse 5, and that he was seen of Cephas, of Peter, and then of the twelve. After that, he was seen above 500 brethren at once. Can you imagine a gathering of 500 people once, one place, at one time, all recognizing, knowing this was Jesus Christ, of whom the greater part remained at this present? They were still living to testify of it when Paul was writing to the Corinthians. But some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James. That was his brother, half-brother. And then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. I'm the least of the apostles that am not meet to, to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Now look over in verse uh, 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead. He gives in those intervening verses some suppositions. All the things we hold dear are empty and mythical and pointless if Christ did not rise from the dead. But he, he does that as an, a lawyer arguing a case. What if? What if? And then he comes back with all assurity to drive away any doubts that may have been planted in people's minds. And when he says, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruit of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. The first Adam brought death and sin. The second Adam brought life and resurrection. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after where they were, uh, that were at Christ at his coming, and then cometh the end. We think about that, the end. In our day, we, we think more and more about it as we hear troubling things and disturbing things across the world. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign. 
Praise be the name of our Savior. He must reign. We look forward to that. He reigns in our hearts and our lives as we yield to him in salvation. He reigns in his church, but he must reign on his earth that he created, the, the, this, the, the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Well, back in chapter 23 of Luke's gospel, I want you to look there in verse 50. Luke 23 and verse 50. Behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just. The same had not consented to the counsel indeed of them. He was of the Sanhedrin, but he had not gone along with the Sanhedrin's advice to have Jesus killed. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. He was looking for the coming of the Messiah. There's an old adage we often remind ourselves. We usually find what we're looking for. Are you looking for Jesus today? Are you looking for salvation? He can be found of you. All that seek him will find him, he says. And Joseph was looking for the Messiah. So many of them were not. The, the, the chief priests, the, 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 none of those were looking for the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. At his birth, when, uh, when the Magi came, they could tell him where he was going to be born, but they weren't looking for him. They didn't go to investigate it, did they? There are those who are not looking for Jesus and his salvation. And verse 52, this man went unto Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. I think Mark's gospel says craved. Think about what a strong desire it was to take the body of Jesus and prepare it for burial. And he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone where it never man before was laid and that day was the preparation and the sabbath drew on and the women also which came with him from galilee followed after and behold the sepulcher and now his body was laid and they returned and prepared spices and ointments and rested the sabbath day according to the commandment now upon the first day of the week very early in the morning they came into the sepulcher bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them, and they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher, and they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments, and as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you, when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinners, sinful men, and be crucified, and third, the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Even among those who know the Lord as Savior, many do not know why the resurrection is so important. I'm afraid that many of God's people, many maybe in our congregation this morning, would know the reasons pressing why the, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so vitally important. Some will say that the resurrection took place to prove that he was God. It certainly did convince his disciples that this they knew and felt he was, but that certainly convinced them and that select group that... Uh, and others who personally saw the risen Lord that he indeed was the Christ. But what about the vast majority who never saw the empty tomb? And by the way, we would be in that number, wouldn't we? Those who, who didn't have the eyewitness abilities or privileges that these early disciples and apostles had. And those 500 that we read about. What a group of people. Uh, you might fool one or two or three or four or 12, but 500 people at one time. And Paul said many of them were still alive uh, as he was writing that letter who could testify that, yes, they saw 
were assured that they had seen the risen Christ. But today, in this cynical, atheistic, agnostic, secularistic, postmodern, however you want to describe it, society, 2,000 years later, how does that, that event that I just read about, how does that convince cynics who have not seen it for themselves? We live in a day where people love to have proof and science and technology, and there is their God and their religion and their faith. They say it only happened in literature or in lore and in the minds of followers of religious people, and it, it does not have any uh, pressing importance or cannot be proven today. The resurrection of Jesus Christ took place to assure believers of several vitally important things, at least eight that I want us to consider this morning. Christ rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples over 2,000 years ago and spent 40 day, over 40 days with them before ascending into heaven. Now, that's an amazing thing in and of itself. For 40 days after his resurrection, he moved in and among people. He was not in a cave. He was not locked up. He was not in an upper room for 40 days. And he was at large. And so that's a vitally important thing to, to, to note. 40, over a month, uh, he was physically present in and among his people and others who saw him. And then ascending into heaven so that we could learn and appreciate these truths. And there are at least eight of them, the uh, things about the, the, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ teaches. First of all, his resurrection proved the success of what took place at Calvary. You see, when you look to death and what some call martyrdom, the, the cruel, cruelties that took place at Calvary, uh, it seems like such a failure. Yes, they, may, they said he, pr- he produced miracles and did things we can't explain and uh, did many mighty things. And they called him teacher and prophet and rabbi and, and miraculous things. But, uh, w- but what about he died? And so uh, th- the resurrection proves the success of what Calvary represented. It said that Calvary accomplished all that God set out to do there. If you look at Calvary simply from the ground toward the, the sky and the events, literally, it seems like such a pitiful, horrible, tragic, dead-end kind of thing. But there's more going on than meets the human eye. God proves that what he set out to do there was successful. If Christ had not risen and appeared to his disciples in a glorified, recognizable, validated, tangible body, they would never have really known for certain these all, the apostles, every one of them gave their lives uh, in martyrdom for him. You don't give your life for something you're not absolutely convinced of or dedicated to or feel 100% about, whether it's to save someone else's life or something you believe in. We hear almost daily of these horrible uh, Islamic people, the, the, the renegade people, uh, going into the hotel or the college recently over the weekend, and they went from room to room. I've heard, are you, uh, can you state the, the, the Muslim statement of faith, whatever they say? If they could not, they killed them. And, uh, or, or if they would not, they, they killed them. Well, you don't die for if, uh, that split second when you could say, you know, Allah is whatever, or I, I believe in Christ, I'm a Christian, I, I don't believe in, in, in Islam. You don't say that if you're not absolutely convinced of what you're standing for or what you do believe. And so the resurrection validated to those apostles. They saw and handled and touched and ate in fellowship, ate with and fellowshiped with this risen body of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that the punishment of, for sin was a success. 
But by the power of his divine nature, he rose again, showing that atonement was complete. Paul notes in Romans 4.25 that Christ was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. You see, not only did he die for the crimes that we committed against God, but he rose again and that purchased, as it were, our justification. God accepted his son's death as payment for our sin. A great transaction, all the old songs point to that, many of them do, the transaction that was done, the, the wrath of God, the, the atoning grace and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He atoned, he paid for, he redeemed. All those purchasing uh, words that we use to speak of, of what took place at Calvary, the sac- sacrifice was perfect and it was complete. It was sufficient. No more sacrifice for sin was needed. And we have other things that point to that, the the rent veil and and those other events that took place. His bodily resurrection and his bodily ascension could never have taken place if his sacrifice in our place was a failure, if it did not fulfill all that the, the scriptures taught. His, he didn't leave believers wandering, and they would have. I mean, these people had followed him for three years, given up lucrative jobs, some of them, and uh, he put their lives on hold. To, when, in those days, when you went to college, you sat at a, a teacher's feet. You lived with them. You ate with them. You lived, it was a very personal uh, relationship. They, whatever he went, the teacher went, you went with them. And so all of that uh, that took place in those three years, they would have been left one, if they'd never saw, if the tomb had been empty even, and they never saw or touched or had interaction with a literal body, they would have been wondering. They would not have been so decisive. They would not have declared with all authority and taught with authority the things they taught and died for the, 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 the death of Jesus Christ. He didn't leave believers wondering, but rose to settle the matter, at least in believers' hearts and minds, once and for all. And he appeared to them visibly, to his own, audibly. They understood, they recognized his voice. Uh, physically and unmistakably. And so this gives uh, believers assurance, but not necessarily today uh, to us, although if we by faith believe it, but those first century people, his disciples and believers, it gave them a a certain assurance that they could pass on to us. It did not necessarily uh, give tangible proof to to cynics, however. But secondly, I want us to think about uh, the resurrection proved Christ's power over death. In John chapter 2, verse 19, it is recorded that Christ said, destroy this temple. And of course, this was the, the thorny issue, the loophole, that actually led to his death, at least if you look at the forensic evidence in the, the mock trial. That's, they said he committed blasphemy. For bla- you couldn't say anything uh, about the temple in, in a disrespectful way. But he was referring to here, destroy this temple, this body of mine, uh, and I will raise it up in three days. So he's already prophesying his resurrection back in John chapter 2, verse 19. And, and the record goes on, that, that on record that he was speaking of his body. In John chapter 10, verse 17 through 18, he, the Lord said, Therefore doth my father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. There's a reason, there's an order of events, and the reason I'm submitting and subjecting myself to the horrors of Gethsemane and Calvary in this horrible death is that I might take it up again. He had to die to take his life again, to, to raise it up again. No man taketh it from me. He sets the record straight. Though they were guilty, 
They wanted it. They voted for it. They pushed for it. They actually physically carried out that. But he, they could do nothing. Even today, no one can do anything that God does not allow. And he said, they don't take my life from me. I lay it down uh, my, of myself. I have power to lay it down. And this is one of the most miraculous, powerful portions of Scripture. I have power to lay it down, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. See, he was on record saying, I have the power to raise up my body from the dead. Now, that didn't register with everybody. It was on record. But, I mean, we're talking about things that you don't see every day. I mean, you're talking about beyond... And normal, normal realm of things. And he said a lot of things that were beyond their experience level. Just like we hear a lot of doctrine that's beyond our experience level, but does not mean the glorification of the body one day. But, but it's still true. And he said, I, I'm, I will lay down my life because I have power to do that and I have power to raise it up again. Well, this commandment have I received of my Father. This is the Father's will and I will carry it out. God the Father sanctioned, he authorized, and approved the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, from the foundation of the world, the predeterminate counsel of God decided that. In human terms, the Father looked upon the suffering and death of his Son, and this is what uh, unsaved and even liberal uh, people uh, who call themselves Christians but do not take the, the Scripture literally absolutely are appalled at the, the, the propitiation, the, the atoning work of Christ, that he had to pay and in, 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 in satisfy the wrath and vengeance of the holiness and justice of God. But in human terms, the father looked upon the suffering and death of his son and affirmed that he had totally taken our sin and our punishment upon himself. In itself, a miraculous thing, the collective sins of every person that he atoned for, and it was placed upon him there, upon himself, and fulfilled perfectly all that was mandatory for redemption. Now, God gave our elementary students here in Leviticus, and one of the, had left the prayer meeting this morning, and one of the elementary teachers was asking me a question about them describing the sacrifices in Leviticus, and those are uh, important Verses, And if you just read Leviticus and it's the continual what to bring and how to bring it and so forth, uh, they were trying to make it fresh and vital and, and understandable to fifth grade, fourth grade and fifth grade students. And I was relating that I read this week where Jesus Christ said, Moses testified of me. How did Moses testify of Jesus Christ? All of that. That, that, that talked about the coming sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice, all those Levitical sacrifices represented the personal work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus declared Moses, what, how did Moses testify? Well, he was the human author of the first five books of the Bible. And all those bo- books point to Jesus Christ. So important to understand that those sacrifices for sin pictured. Now, even in Jesus' day, it had so devolved into a rigmarole and ritualism that the majority of the people didn't get that when they bought that turtle dove or that, that bullock or whatever it was, that it was a picture of what was to come. And they literally were depending upon that, that religious rigmarole, to save them. And, uh, of course, nothing could be further from the truth. So the Father gave the commandment and the sanction to the Son for the resurrection but the son, we must remember, was raised by his own power. 
He said that. I can lay my life down and I have the power to take it up again. Now, only God can do that. Do you see how important the resurrection points to the deity of Jesus Christ? Christ lived as an obedient son. He submitted himself, though co-equal with the Father, submitted himself to the Father's will, who did only what the Father authorized. And in covenant work, in eternity past, the, the God had authorized who would do what and how it would be done. And by raising himself up by his own power, he proved that he is the resurrection of the life. Doesn't he call himself that? I am the, when he raises Lazarus, he said, you know, you know don't, don't be worried or upset here. I, because I live, you shall live also. Uh, that's one of the most precious things that I can tell someone at the graveside of their, of their loved one. Because Christ lived, we can live also. And then he has the audacity to say, I am the resurrection in the life. He's the only person that ever raised himself up from the dead. And because of that, his followers have hope that he will raise them up as well in the last day. The prince of life who is able to bring believers through death and raise up our bodies also, our physical bodies, he will raise up by his power. Now, that's glorious truth on this Resurrection Sunday that Easter bunnies and eggs and all that stuff doesn't even hold a candle to. Now, Christ proved that he had the power to break the bondage of death. We're all under the bondage of death, aren't we? We're all dying. We're in the process of dying. We hear daily of loved ones and friends and of reports of people who are dying or on on their way to death. And we know that lies out there ahead of us. But Christ has broken the, 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 the bondage of death. Death does not hold us. God's approval of it shows that Christ's offering was perfect. He was entitled to the glorified Lord, to be the glorified Lord of his people. He's entitled to the worship and the praise that we ascribe to him today. He was the appointed Savior. He was the qualified Savior. And by his resurrection, he is the accredited Savior. We hear much about accreditation and vetting candidates and finding, you know, making sure the seal of approval is on everything. Well, Christ is the most glorified, qualified, appointed, accredited uh, office holder that ever has been. He, he, his, his credentials are, are impeccable. Third, we see that Christ's headship of the church was shown by his resurrection. He left behind a body of believers from that day until he comes again, the church. And he is the head of his church. There's no human head of the church. There are groups who erroneously teach that, but Christ is the head of his own church. He has never abdicated that position. He's not given it to those who come after him. He's given authority. We stand in his stead, the apostles and all those he's he's called and appointed to to preach, but there's no human head of Christ's church. In fact, we're all referred to as ministers and shepherds and servants of his people. In Romans 1 verse 4, Paul explains why the Lord Jesus did not ascend into glory simply in a spiritual or invisible way. He has a bodily resurrection, a bodily ascension. Now, you say, well, you're you're emphasizing that, and well well so, because it wasn't just a spiritual thing. You can't, a spiritual something is not on the level of actual bodily physical resurrection. And there he says in Romans 1 verse 4 that by the resurrection of Christ was, he was declared to be the Son of God with power. And declared means that, that Christ was marked out and publicly uh, appointed, publicly vetted, if you will. 
publicly, publicly qualified at the resurrection, he is shown to have reassumed his full power. You, you remember that Paul gives us, he says, he who thought, he was, thought it not robbery to be equal with God has for a time lowered himself to become one of us. And in a, a mysterious sense that we don't fully understand, it seems as if the Lord did, and we know he did, suspend some of the abilities, if you will, that he had in his pre, pre-incarnate time. And for, exact, for, for example, when he became a, in a human body, he could only be in one place at a time. He limit, willingly limited himself to a human body without relinquishing any of his deity, without his, any of his uh, God the, being a part of the Godhead. But he became one of us to live a sinless life. But now, in his resurrection and ascension, he has reassumed his full power and lordship as the Son of God. He kept a human body which he would wear forever as the Lord of his ransomed people, as a memorial, as a, as a, a, a trophy, if you will, of his accomplishment. He has a body right now that sits at the right hand of God. He will forever have a body that will ever, forever have the visible wounds of the price of our salvation. But what greater assurance could there be of his special interest in us than that he should display his risen body before ascending into heaven for 40 days? It was a glorious display, and uh, those could see it. Doubting Thomas, we call him Doubting Thomas. Aren't you glad for Doubting Thomas? Aren't you glad for those who ask the questions, how can we know the way? Jesus says, I am the way. Well, that answers questions that we might want to ask. And, and Thomas saw the wounds. That, that uh, inclusion in the gospel record shows us that he literally felt, uh, not to be graphic here, the, 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 the riven side and the wounds in his hands. He investigated them. And Thomas was not rebuked for that, was he? He did that for us, to show us. Yes, there are those who have personally seen the resurrected, glorified body of Jesus Christ. What greater assurance than the Lord could display his, his risen body before ascending into heaven, showing us that he would uh, wear human nature throughout eternity. This proves that he has pledged himself to his redeemed people. What a, he's our bridegroom, isn't he? What a precious relationship we have with Christ because of the resurrection, and that he would never leave us nor forsake us. Now, Romans 14, verse 9, declares his everlasting kingship over his people. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. He rules over those who've gone on into heaven, and he rules over us. He is Lord of all. But fourth, we see that his resurrection reveals what the future holds for us. You see, we have an interest in this, don't we? The, the grave and death, even for a child of God, holds mystery and questions and, and maybe uh, some even fear, although we say that the, the, the death of Christ has taken away the sting of death, and yet we do approach it with wonder and questions, and, and none of us gladly receive it. And, and, but his resurrection reveals what is awaiting for us. His resurrection promises that we will rise again too. Romans 8 verse 11 says, But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken or make alive 
your mortal, your earthly bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. The Lord had previously promised that he would rise again so that his disciples might be assured of their own future resurrection and saying, because I live, you shall live also, as we've already mentioned. And we've looked at those details in, in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits, the, the leading of the, of the way, the first fruits of them that have uh, from the dead. He is the forerunner, the first fruits of what is to follow. Now, and that's what that word first fruits mean, the, the first fruits of all that will follow. The resurrection shows that when in the last day of this present earth, whenever that will be, the bodies of believers are reconstituted and rejoined with their souls, these new bodies will not be the same as they were before death. Though they'll be recognizable, they will have some greatly changed properties about them. And while we don't fully understand all the details, enough has been told us it's absolutely thrilling. The Bible says that even though it doesn't appear what we shall be, we know that when we see him, we shall be as he is. We'll be able to function in our glorified bodies like our Lord did. On Resurrection Day, this corruptible uh, that we now possess, this decaying, aging I hate to be graphic here, rotting <laughs> bodies that we have. Someone said, you don't believe that you're a rotten sinner? Just don't brush your teeth for about a month and just see, you know. Don't wash, don't bathe for a while. You'll see how rotten you are. We are, aren't we? We're decaying uh, beings. But when Christ will come, this corruptible will have put on incorruption, that which will not stink or rot or have any aging dying properties about it whatsoever. That in itself is absolutely glorious, isn't it? As they, they were before death. On resurrection day, this corruptible will have put on incorruption and will be altogether changed. We shall all be changed, the Bible says. Not one of his, his saints will not participate in this glorious change. When Christ appeared to his disciples uh, after his resurrection, it was obvious to them that he had changed physically. Though they recognized him, he was drastically changed. The body placed in the tomb was wounded, it was beaten, it was tortured, capable of dying. In fact, it was dead. But after he raised himself up, his body was totally changed. And though it bore the marks that proved it was the same body, his resurrected body had qualities that, that were not seen to them before. He could suddenly appear in the midst of his disciples when they had the door locked and barred. He just appeared in their presence. And he could disappear in the same way, even though the doors were locked. And yet he was tangible. He was real. He was not a ghost. He was not a spirit. He had a literal body that ate. He ate meals with them. He would vanish from their sight mysteriously at his ascension physically as he just gravitated. He had the ability to gravitate uh, toward heaven uh, on his own right, uh, by his own power. And all this showed uh, that his resurrection accomplished for the, for the redeemed in the future, what, what holds for us. We get a foretaste into what our own resurrected life will be like. We will have glorified, wonderfully transformed bodies as well. The Bible teaches us that. Today, they will receive visible, recognizable, touchable but bodies incapable of decay or sickness or death or tiredness. Won't that be wonderful? We'll be equipped to live in a new Jerusalem and a new earth, a heavenly atmosphere and an earthly atmosphere as well. And all this is glorious 
but the Bible teaches it. But there's a fifth important thing that we see here because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It showed our Lord's triumphant triumph over Satan, his arch enemy. Now, he had to be literally and physically seen to, to be the victor of the greatest battle in all of history. Not only did his death atone or pay for our sins, it was also a demonstration and proof of good over evil, something we don't always see, something we rarely see, the triumph of good over evil. We long to see it, but Christ's resurrection triumphantly showed the the glory of good over evil, of godliness over rebellion, and of God over Satan. His perfect life vindicated the standards of God, showing that righteousness was possible, not just something that could be thought about or, or, and not something that could be earned, but, but by faith received. In his obedience unto death, he showed the beauty and the mercy and the kindness in contrast with the cruelty and the lies of Satan. Well, the, the psalmist saw this great truth of Christ triumphing over Satan in Psalm 68. These, what we refer to as the Messianic Psalms. In Psalm 68, it says, Let God arise and his enemies be scattered. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive, which, by the way, Paul quotes again in that passage of, uh, in Ephesians where he talks about God's gifts to the church. And he talks about Christ uh, leading captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men. Yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Well, our Lord's resurrection is pictured as a glorious, victorious demonstration of his power. And as we mentioned in Ephesians 4, we see him leading a host of captives at his ascension. Satan had been a a, a privileged angel, you'll recall, who fell through his own pride, his own will, becoming an evil rebel. And, and doing everything in his power to bring down the human race in order to make Christ's creation of a peopled world a failure. He was trying to prove that rebellion against God is stronger than, than obedience, and that sin pays, and that evil will prevail over purity. And he has led a war from that day till this. He's not stopped his war. Calvary has not stopped his, his mindset and his war. But uh, it has certainly shown us that it is not true. Do we have to wait until judgment day? So often we'll say, well, there's a day coming and God will settle the score. And he certainly will. The Lord says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. But I ask you this morning, do we have to wait until judgment day? to see righteousness be victorious over sin and rebellion? No, all we have to go is to the empty tomb. Satan couldn't hold him there. All the demons of hell combined could not hold him there. No, Christ's resurrection gives a visible victory of Christ over Satan. In this world, it looks as if Satan and sin is is gaining victory, doesn't it? We, We mourn that, and we often wring our hands and say, oh, these are terrible days, and it looks like that the righteousness is fading and that, this, that God's people are a minority and that sin is pervading overall. It looks as if Satan and sin are gaining uh, through crime and oppression and all the horrible things we hear about and God's standards being abused as they are on the surface. It might look like crime pays. It might look like the courts are not just, that you can buy your way out of situations. and you, it, may, it may look that... As in the reverse, that good is wrong and wrong is good, that, that the crooked and the perverse and the proud and the dishonest 
are victorious over purity and godliness. But I want to remind us on this resurrection day, as every Lord's Day is, the perfect man lived a, a sinless life and put to shame the sin of spiritual rebellion. Christ went to Calvary and rose again from the dead to show his own power. And he put down all of that. See him hanging there on the cross. Who's going to win? Satan or God? Christ won out over sin, death, and hell in the grave. Satan could no longer claim to, to, to billions of people who would look to Christ for salvation. He could no longer claim them, who, those who are born again and who, who become the followers of Jesus Christ. Well, with Satan's claims broken, he is not in charge of death. He is not over all, all of that. The human race through the sage would revive in due time, and judgment would fall on Satan. Psalm 68 that we just read from uses the picture of the ancient conquering general of the king who marches back to, to, to his people in great victory, having vanquished the enemies. And there's a great um, parade. His glory is on display. The spoils of war, the chariots, the horses, the people shouting. And he mar marches in having vanquished his enemies, he marches into his new possession. It looks forward to the conquest achieved by Christ when we celebrate the resurrection. But a sixth thing that the resurrection accomplishes, Christ's resurrection commended him as Lord. Now, we call him in his full title, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord in life and for all eternity. The question may be asked, what entitlement, what qualification does Christ have for kingship over his people, over his converted people? We answer that he is the rightful king simply by the virtue of being divine. He is the son of God. He is our supreme monarch by his royal birth. We have his lineage. We can trace it. He is the rightful heir to David's throne. The, the Holy Spirit proves that and very uh, clearly in the scripture. He is our king by virtue of ownership, by his creative power. He, he brought all things into existence. It is he that has made us and not we ourselves. He is king. He is also qualified to be king by virtue of his attributes, which are in, infinitely superior to all power and all the, the, the powers of the demons of hell and of all power on heaven and earth and of Satan and all human powers put together. His qualifications are endless. We, he knows all things. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He can do all things. No power on earth can hinder him permanently. He may have looked like three days there that uh, he was not victorious, but even then he was doing a glorious work, wasn't he? All-powerful. And there's nothing that can obstruct his plans on our purposes. And that's why he can declare, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against my redeemed people. I will present a church, a bride to Christ, to, to God the Father, without spot or wrinkle. My sheep will hear my voice. I will call them, they will repent and believe the gospel, and he has the power to do that. He has the right to be king by every possible argument with the exception of one. You might ask, well, what could that argument be? He has right to be king by every possible argument but by one. 
He is not an elected king, is he? Or an elected administrator over his people, as the rebellious human race is concerned. In fact, they said, we will not have this man to reign. We have no king but Caesar. We will not have him to be king. His rightful subjects have turned their backs on him. He came into his own, and his own received him not, challenging his right to rule over them in a very haughty and horrible way. They have rejected his standards, his authority, his created humans. By and large, as a race, we have, haven't we? We don't want to have anything to do. We've voted you out of the schools and out of our government and are making laws daily to show that we won't, don't, I say we as a people, will have, not have him to reign over us. We've rejected his standards of marriage and holiness and righteousness and, and, and goodness and how to civilly, how to live and how to, to please him, his moral law his authority, and we've sold ourselves as humans unto the bondage of Satan who has become their Lord. How do believers then elect Christ? We speak of the election of believers, but how do we elect Christ? Through his atoning death and righteous life, Christ pays the price of sin and earns heaven for us. He is triumphant in his resurrection, and through these things, he becomes to believers an overwhelmingly desirable Lord. What the world does not see is valuable or glorious in him, we see, don't we? Unto you, therefore, who believe, he is precious. We are attracted to him. And as a bride is attracted to her, to her, her groom, his rising again confirms our salvation, and we willingly look to him and choose him as our king. To complete and, and to, to crown the work of, of atonement, there had to be a visible, earthly savior king, as a bride, and we celebrate this today. And all the glorious praises to our King, our risen Lord and King. And as a bride, as I've already alluded to, as a bride chooses to marry her bridegroom, so the church embraces Christ, and we've seen Him in His risen glory. He's glorious and beautiful and lovely to us, and we choose Him even as He chooses us. He becomes our king, not only by right, by creation, by his qualifications, by his purchase of our redemption, and by conquest, but also the uninhibited free choice of his subjects. Seventh, we see that his resurrection revealed Christ's attributes. We've already alluded to them. But does not the resurrection prove that he has these attributes? Colossians 2 verse 9 tells us, In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In a human body, all that God is, is seen in Jesus Christ. In fact, Christ declared, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know anything about God, investigate me and my words and my life, and you will see what God is like. In that gracious God who cannot be contained, God who is spirit, God who has no body, so graciously revealed himself to us that we could comprehend him, that we could worship him and know him through the, the physical coming of our Lord and Savior to the earth, but not just him coming and suffering, but by his glorious resurrection. The Trinity's glory is shown off in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The gospel accounts of Jesus Christ are miraculous. His deeds, his healings, his, his, his feeding the 5,000, any of those things we, we point to show his deity, his miraculous work. 
But they focused primarily on his humanity. He was tempted, he hungered, he thirsted, he grew weary. There we see his graciousness, his compassion toward men's depraved and hopeless condition and needs as he healed people and provided for their physical needs. But unless we see his resurrection, we do not see his power of endless life and his absolute invincibility. He is unconquerable. He is king. The resurrection gives us a full picture. Let me ask you this morning, can God die? Could, could God fail? Could, would Christ be overpowered? The answer is no. But the only way we have these validations is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It would look as if those, the opposite would be true if Christ had not risen. It proved that everything he said or did was right. He is who he says he was. He could take his life back. He did lay it down. He did raise it up again. He is the Christ. His words and his deeds and his actions are, are vindicated by his resurrection. It proves his foreknowledge that he knew exactly what he was doing in, in laying down his life and taking it up again. Well, our time is gone, but the eighth thing. When you have eight points, you run the risk of crowding one out, don't you? But the eighth thing is the resurrection shows his never-changing attitude toward his own. His glorified state did not change his relationship with his disciples. He still loved them. He still loved his people. He still cared for them. He provided food for them. In Luke 24, verse 36, as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in their midst, and he said unto them, Peace be unto you. They were terrified, and we read that the Lord commended to them, Don't be troubled. And it did not change his relationship to them at, at, at all. All these glorious proofs and these glorious uh, qualities of our Lord's resurrection are treasured by us today. Let's praise him. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise the risen Savior. He's in the world today. He's speaking through his word, and he's calling by his spirit. Oh, may your work be glorious and obvious in our eyes today. Give great glory to the Son. May souls be saved as the gospel is preached across this globe today. We pray in Jesus' name.